Hello and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast that explores compelling themes in some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Brittany. And I'm Chris. And this week is actually the last week of our typical format for the podcast. And we are going to be discussing creativity in The Hunger Games because it was requested to us as one of the patron perks by Kimberly. We are excited for this topic, and after this episode, for the next six months or so, we are going to be reading through the Hunger Games trilogy, kind of like how we did for Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, where it'll probably be about three chapters per week per episode that we we have come out. Uh, The format will be a little different since we're not reading it for the first time, but we're going to mostly be reacting to those three chapters Mm -hmm. so it'll be safe for those who have not read the books before yeah we'll we'll mark time for spoilers yeah we'll we'll specify when there are going to be spoilers i'm sure that there will be at some different points in time but we will clearly state it beforehand yeah so if you have been bugging some of your friends about reading the hunger games books because they never have because i don't know what they've been doing with their lives then now is a great time to get them on board and next week we will be starting with the first chapters so excited about that but the last regular episode we'll have let's get into it it sounds good yeah we we haven't done creativity as a theme before so this is a cool new theme for us to explore thanks to our patron kimberly unsurprisingly someone who created our logo (laughs) yeah a very creative person uh so yeah, I, I, it'll be exciting and hopefully up to up to her standards. <laughs> yes. So we're going to start with a quote. And this quote comes from Songbirds and Snakes. When Snow goes to the Hob for the first time to see Lucy Gray and the Covey play some music. Lucy Gray relinquished the mic, allowing Clark Carmine to step up and do some fancy finger work on his fiddle, embellishing the melody, while the others backed him up. Coriolanus couldn't take his eyes off Lucy Gray's face, lit up like he'd never seen it before. That's her when she's happy, he thought. Yeah, so I think Snow, as always, is an interesting character where he can be pretty perceptive, Mm -hmm. even though he's, like, the worst and manipulative and all these things. Sometimes how he is manipulative, or at least can be manipulative in an effective way, is because he's perceptive. And so I think him recognizing that, oh, this is what she looks like when she's actually happy. Yeah, that that is an important observation that obviously when she was locked up in the Capitol in a cage waiting to die, you're not going to be happy. Even if she could kind of put on a show, she's charismatic and, and could draw people in to liking her and wanting to support her or whatnot but that doesn't mean she was actually happy but this is her in her element with her family the other covey performing and yeah actually happy for her in those moments when they're playing together and providing something beautiful for a district that is so oppressed and like ground down through economic exploitation economic exploitation the type of work they're forced to do like all of these different things um and of course this is in the scene which is the more disadvantaged people within district 12 so yeah i just i I liked that and how creative she is and the kobe Mm -hmm. are and that yeah i mean it's it's a huge part of their group and their culture i think that comes out yeah i just i really liked that despite the adversity that they face not only as people who live in district 12 but as people who are forced to live in district 12 and who are minorities and also have all of these other hardships because of their situation um they don't have any parents or anything like that yeah i think it's it's really beautiful to see that they're able to find an outlet to create beautiful things as well Mm. and to find happiness because it just kind of reminds me when all of these people who were of Japanese descent were you know sent to concentration camps in the United States during World War II there is so much 
amazing art that came out of different concentration camps. Someone making something amazing out of an old toothbrush. People carving shrines or decorative things out of just scrap wood that's lying around and things like that, of just finding anything that they can to have a creative outlet, even in some of the worst circumstances. And so, yeah, I think that that speaks to me of this kind of resilience Mm -hmm. and creativity being a part of that. Yeah, that's interesting. Because for me, it, it also, I'm also thinking about this through the, the lens of like performance, kind of like you were mentioning mm. and how, yeah, this is very much her and her element. She is being, um, still performing, but I think being more genuine here than she ever was in the capital and, and participating in the games. Mm-hmm. And especially for this first performance, when she doesn't know that he's there, there's this weird kind of voyeurism involved where he is watching her not only as an audience member, but as someone who has this relationship with her. And she doesn't know that he's there. Mm -hmm. And so she can perform to this audience in a way that, you know, maybe would be different if she knew that he was there. Creativity so often is done in a way that is performed or shared with others. It doesn't have to be, but it often is. There's a sense of vulnerability there. And so being able to choose your audience is in of itself, I think, a... uh, important act of creation and in some ways as he's doing this he is kind of subverting that he is making it so that she doesn't entirely know who her audience is you know there's another x factor involved there and one that as the end of the book shows could be potentially dangerous for her Mm -hmm. and so yeah I, i think it's a interesting concept to think about those ideas of creativity as yeah resilience and power particularly when you see someone who is of the oppressing class who comes in and plays this this kind of yeah voyeuristic action during that performance which also they're a part of the military mm-hmm. essentially and this is not their home you know they're going into someone else's space and just watching without any understanding really of that community and not the Kobe specifically but even District 12 in general or the scene absolutely and yet I could imagine that there is probably a good amount of money that is brought in through the donations Mm -hmm. right that they ask for that is coming from these soldiers in the military which I think still is very kind of accurate when I'm thinking about I mean military in general but me specifically my mind going to Southeast Asia and, mm. and different places in Asia and like American yeah. military bases exactly and that yeah. yeah I mean and I don't know all of the stories of everything and my biological maternal grandmother is gone already and so I can't get any of that information but I do know that she got pregnant from some U.S. soldier and I think that she was like a singer and she would like work at a bar and things like that and so that's where my mind goes once you brought that up. Absolutely. There's an amazing book by Alison Imada called Aloha America, which is mm-hmm. all about how Hawaii and, and Native Hawaiians became Americanized. And I put that in quotes. Uh, and mm-hmm. basically how that process was about imperialism, colonialism, but also, yeah, exploitation, appropriation, and turning Hawaiian culture into a commodity. And Mm -hmm. before Hawaii was a tourist destination, as we know it today, it was a military installation. And it was something where hula dances and traditional Hawaiian uh, culture, and especially Hawaiian women, were expected to perform in many ways for American servicemen. And that became very much a part of that relationship. And so, yeah, I think the military component there is is something that is seen throughout the world in military bases and conquest and colonialization. Um, That's a really good point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because the only interest these people have in whoever that they're, they're colonizing, even if they're only there for a short period of time still, like 
the only interest is really entertainment mm-hmm. or you know pleasure in some sort of way that they can consume exactly it's very much turning them into what what can we get from them for us not it's not a a, re- a real relationship mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but at the same time like for the Kovi, this is one one of the only reasons ways that they can survive and two a way to keep their culture alive when there's hardly any of them left absolutely yeah it's it's an interesting complicated situation i shouldn't say there isn't a relationship because there is a relationship that does have back and forth but that's not what it's intended to be by Mm. those in power they don't expect to be influenced by those who they are oppressing commodifying though they are ultimately and that that itself shows the agency of the people who are engaging in these interactions absolutely and it usually only comes after a certain period of time of them like trying to suppress and kill out that culture previously until they're finally like oh some of this is interesting you know absolutely yeah yeah. well we should move into our discussion proper what character did you bring so i decided to talk about Peter malark i was toying with sinet as well Mm -hmm. because so many great things with him come from his creativity but i feel like we've touched on that a little bit more than we have Peta's creativity so i was thinking about how he engages with creativity and uses it for a really wide range of things throughout the books so we have him decorating cakes to help support his family We also have him using camouflage in the games as a survival technique. We have him painting as therapy after the games. And his talent. Yeah, and his talent, which also is interesting because I really do wonder how many of his paintings would have been shown to Panem. Absolutely, yeah. (laughs) There's one of Katniss with her head in a pool of blood, (laughs) you know. (laughs) I mean... Probably even if things were really deep and you could find a lot in them, maybe not everybody in the capital at least would would see that. They should be like, oh, his love, you know, rather than, oh, this is therapy crap. <laughs> <laughs> but we also see him using painting of Rue that he did as this form of resistance and as mm. a way to hold game makers accountable in, in some small way. And, and what he thinks of is probably as, as one of his last acts before entering the games. And then we also have him, once he has resources after winning the first games, we saw him use his creativity for creative bakes, mm. you know, trying out different flavor combinations and, and different things that he gave as gifts to loved ones. He brought it to Katniss. He brought it to Haymitch. I could imagine he did things for his family and things like that, too. Yeah. And kind of at the end, the very, very end, we find out that he is helping Katniss with continuing on the books of different herbs and plants and different things Mm. in the forest that Katniss's father had done. He's using his creativity and his illustrations to draw these things and, and... log them which i think is really cool because in that way it's kind of like creativity as memory like as a a device for remembering things and i think even though when you think of Peta, there's there's so many different things you can think about when you think of him i think it's really interesting that part of katniss knowing that Peta was doing better than she thought he was after the hijacking and everything in mockingjay was when she saw the wedding cake that he baked and Mm. decorated for finnick and annie's wedding so clearly to katniss creativity is an integral part of him and him being himself and so yeah i just i i thought he is a great character in this world that really demonstrates the wide variety of ways that he could use creativity for his own means even in a really oppressive regime yeah so true it also makes me think about how Peta is also able to make connections with people that katniss isn't able to at times because of that creativity 
Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the Morphlings, I think, are the best example of that. Yeah. Um, where he is able to connect with them on a level that is really impactful, which is also another thing that I, I like about those scenes is that, that Katniss doesn't write it off the way that a snow would. Uh, you know, that <laughs> yeah. this is just unnecessary or, or romantic or, or whatever. It's, this is this amazing skill that this person has that I don't, but I admire in them. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Yeah, it makes me think of, in, in certain ways, like, creativity is comfort. Because when one of them is dying mm. in the games, he's holding her and talking to her and she uses her blood to make a rose or a flower on his cheek and he's talking to her about colors and things like that this was yeah a way to connect but also to help ease them yeah into death which is also a really beautiful thing too yeah i also think about how in a way it kind of exemplifies his growth between the 74th and 75th games because in the 74th games, he just throws bags of flour around or whatever, bags of sand for his thing with the game makers. Mm-hmm. But by... <laughs> Definitely wasn't flour, but yeah. But yeah, the, the idea of him heaving these huge sacks of flour showed yeah. his strength. But yeah, you know, he, he goes from the person who she doesn't really know of just this strong baker in the first book and, and by catching fire he is so so complex and we understand so much more of that as a character and he's showing so much more of of that as a character by his painting of rue it's a very compelling journey for him yeah absolutely and one that i really appreciate for him because without that i think he could be a little too tropey like oh i'm just the loyal lovesick boy Mm -hmm. who will sacrifice everything for this person that I love. Yeah, that's not a very interesting characteristic if that's all that they have, you know. But I I think, to me, where a lot of his interest comes out is sometimes when it's not even about that. Sometimes when he does something outside of that that could endanger Katniss. Like, not actively, but, for example, when he was saying... In District 11, we're going to give one month mm. of our winnings, right? It had nothing to do with her, really. Yeah. You know, it, it was about these other families. And, and I think it's the same with, you know, what he did uh, with painting Rue. It was about making a statement. So his entire identity, his entire motivation aren't all on her, you know, aren't mm. tied to her, which I think is important for a character who still does care about her and does cater so many of his actions to try to help or not let her die. That Yeah, he has these other elements sometimes that are just for himself and other times that are doing things, yeah, to kind of push back in a way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I love PETA. <laughs> I mean, who doesn't love PETA? I know there are some people who are Team Gale out there, but... Team wrong. <laughs> but what is your plot point for me? I want to talk about the game makers. Oh, okay. Because I think it's really telling that for the Capitol, one of the kind of pinnacle aspects of creativity, one of the most respected and powerful creative opportunities available to anyone, are the people who have a a kind of art form of creating deadly battlefields for child sacrifice. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yep, that's true. (laughs) Uh, It's one thing I think the the first movie did really well at, highlighting how for Seneca Crane, this was a kind of art form. This was timing things, doing things exactly these ways to try to elicit specific responses. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, much of that is... Because this is the highest form of entertainment that the Capitol has. And mm-hmm. it, it t- it's tied into the, really the thesis of the series that, you know, entertainment can often come at a cost when it doesn't have intentional ideas and philosophies that are compassionate behind them. Mm-hmm. Where they can so quickly become exploitative. And here is a extreme example of that <laughs> kind of exploitation. Yes. And so, yeah, we, we see... 
two arenas in the original trilogy, and then we see in Songbirds and Snakes, going back to the 10th Hunger Games, before there was a creative aspect of the arena, when it was just, we have this space that we can lock them in and put drones into, but by the 74th and 75th games, we see how this is something that is designed and Mm -hmm. how much resources are put into it. (laughs) Right. The 75th games in particular with the clock idea shows really the, the kind of yeah creative thinking that goes into the design of these arenas. Yeah, and it works on, on kind of multiple levels where as a reader, seeing these different wedges and what they do and figuring out that it's a clock and having Katniss and her allies go through these new trials is exciting. It's a, it's a interesting aspect of the games. Makes um, you keep going to the next chapter and the next exactly. chapter. What's going to happen next? What's the next threat they're going to face? And so it is working both <laughs> for the capital and for us as readers. Um, it shows us how close we are to the capital. Exactly. Because if she just kept writing the same book with different people, but like, the challenges they faced in the games were the same Mm -hmm. people wouldn't keep reading which is why people won't keep watching the games without a new arena a new climate a new everything has to be different each year exactly yeah yeah and the excitement that they can get from those of seeing yeah these new challenges these new creative ways of using traps and technology and mutts to find ways of torturing and traumatizing and killing and maiming the children who are participating. They have to die in interesting ways. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly what it comes down to, is that the deaths alone, as we see in Songbirds and Snakes, are not what compels the people to watch. Actually, that is something that is hard for many people to watch, even though they are the enemy to most of those in the capital. It is the pageantry, it is the creativity, it is all these other elements that make it so that you have a wider narrative and story that is compelling and entertaining. So yeah, I I just, I think that it's uh, an interesting lens to look at the Capitol, to think about how these game makers do have this much power and respect, and how they put so much time and energy and creativity and resources into these creations yeah and that those creations can be simultaneously compelling and horrifying yeah that's really interesting because now that's making me think it's not just the resources to make the arenas and film the arenas Mm -hmm. and edit them and you know all of these things but it's it starts so much earlier than that in our world if you go to university you're going to be studying a particular field and you can get a master's or PhD. Most people are not studying whatever they're majoring in with the intention of making things that will kill other people. Most people that's not the case but now I'm thinking it so is the case in the capital Mm -hmm. because for these games like you need so many people. You need architects, engineers, some sort of biologists for the mutts. You know, you need so much as well as, yes, cinematographers. And I'm sure musicians adding music and dramatic parts on playbacks and, you know, stuff. And so it's so many resources at such a young age must be going into educating and raising up the next wave of game makers and anyone involved in the game since so much of the capital society revolves around this on an annual basis yeah and that you saying that for me shows me the one-to-one comparison with our society which is how the military utilizes so much of our society, even those outside mm-hmm. of the military itself who are contra- contracting with the military. And that goes from entertainment, people who, you know, anytime there's military involved, anytime there's a helicopter or a battleship or anything that needs to be filmed, you're getting military contracts involved there. That means that they're going to have some oversight. But I-, I heard an amazing story recently about how a number of workers at different technology firms, especially dealing with AI, 
have found out that that AI is being used in part for for military uses Mm -hmm. and what it means to work at a company when you just wanted to be on the frontier of technology, but that technology is then used in ways that are part of... To kill other people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That destruction. And so, you know, there's, there's levels of complacency that you don't just have to be a game maker to have a connection with this destructive element Mm -hmm. um uh you even if you yourself don't watch the hunger games you might still be involved with it same with us you know are you on an iphone um Mm -hmm. you know sure you may hate the idea of forced labor but Mm -hmm. you're still using things that require exploitation and and if you don't use an iphone doesn't mean that everyone else around you isn't doesn't mean that you're not using technology that comes from that Or someone may want to go into fashion or something or even just work for a company that that's their primary commodity while almost every company is getting their fabrics or the actual construction of the clothing is made in sweatshops and through labor exploitation. So it's, it's definitely there. Yeah. I think in our society we ignore it so much more mm-hmm. rather than in Panem, the Hunger Games are celebrated. Yeah. It is the event of the year. Whereas here, it's like, oh, shh, let's not talk about that. Let's just look at the Met Gala and ooh and awe over their outfits and not like think about any let's of the... all celebrate Black Friday as, <laughs> you know, basically its own holiday at this point. <laughs> yeah. Um, without talking about any of that stuff but yeah it's, it's interesting that in Panem it's like they know what things are going towards because their society is based around a celebrated idea of this yeah it's making the subtext very much text yeah <laughs> there is no subtext <laughs> <laughs> well we should go into our compelling questions so I'm wondering what are some creative things that you kind of maybe overlooked in the Hunger Games books until actually thinking about this theme for this episode? Because I know, at least for me, there were some things I was like, oh, interesting. Yeah, I think the Game Makers one was a big one Mm -hmm. um, and why I ultimately kind of went with that because I was thinking of a few other things. Yeah, PETA, Cinna, the Covey. I think that like the outfits the tributes wear mm. um, when they're revealed to the capital. But when I thought about the arena and, and the game makers, I just couldn't stop thinking down that path. And I couldn't stop thinking about how Katniss kind of talks about, you know, what's going to be thrown at me next. But yeah, thinking about that as a creative act um, and creative acts, as you mentioned, with so many different levels of, of who's being involved with that. Yeah, can you imagine like, you don't say, oh, yeah, I went to Harvard. It's like you brag about, I worked on the 67th game. Exactly. Yeah. Or you're a retired game maker and you go teach at a university classes on how to do these sorts of things, you know? Yeah. The psychology of the games. Well, I, and I mean, that's kind of what is going on with Dr. Gall and Dean Highbottom, where mm-hmm. they are among the most powerful people in the world in Panem and they, yeah they're teaching classes on the Hunger Games and, and how to do that and, and you know that's very much part of their pedagogy of mm-hmm. what they want to teach and what what they want to how to best most effectively impart the lessons they want to impart to the next generation of leaders mm-hmm. and the rest of Panem. Yeah, and I think with Dr. Gall too, she has a lot of creativity because she's doing all of these experiments. Mm-hmm. She's crossbreeding different types of animals. She's tampering with their DNA and all sorts of things to unfortunately make things more deadly, but it's it's still creative. Yeah. I think another thing that came to my mind was the moment when Hamish sits everyone down and critiques the propo <laughs> and then asks when Katniss did touch people. Mm-hmm. And, and this is how a revolution dies. Yeah, right. <laughs> so sardonic and dramatic. Um, it also made me think how Hamish has gained those skills after mm. decades of being a mentor. Yeah, Where he 
this is nothing I think that comes naturally to him, but after working with Effie and her predecessors for so long and understanding just the way things work and how important it is for these performances to exist and the mm-hmm. power they have, these are things that he's kind of built a a skill set in that most of the people certainly in District 13 don't have. Yeah, um, And then true. the people like Plutarch are too wrapped up in the insincerity of the capital to really be able to to find what Hamish is able to to highlight which is the moments of performance that bring along sincerity and thus find the really compelling sweet spot yeah absolutely because plutarch just knows about how to produce things for the capital audience Mm -hmm. whereas Hamish has learned things from the capital audience that the games are catered for but also knows the (laughs) realism that you also need to bring to actually get to the district people exactly yeah now what, what else were you thinking i was kind of thinking about creativity along this spectrum of privilege so we have the style in the capital which there's there's so much extravagance and luxury Mm. there that obviously comes because of the privilege that the people in the capital have and that correlates to the privilege of being able to express one's individuality um through clothing and hairstyles and things like that Mm. But then you have something like Katniss's braided hair and how when the prep team comes in book two and is trying to learn from the mom, like how to braid her hair in this beautiful way and how they're on the completely opposite side of the spectrum when it comes to privilege and resources, but they found ways to still do something creative in a fashionable way in a, a unique way yeah that, that is something that was different that which is partially why the capital was so enthralled it, yeah. yeah exactly and i think you have that too with the game makers or dr gall and they have all of these resources like it seems almost limitless and can do all of these creative terrible things with it and then you have someone like greasy say who has found a way to be able to basically cook with anything Mm. like she has so few resources but she can make something out of it so yeah that that was something that i just never thought about before until i was thinking about this theme yeah that's a great point it makes me think i think there's an idiom that's something akin to like desperation begets innovation where the mm. the fewer resources you have, the more innovative you have to become. And Greasy Say and, and The Hob in general, I think, are a good example of that. Yeah, totally. Not to say that desperation is a good thing or that people can always innovate their way out of whatever desperate situation. No, sometimes you just die. But yeah, I just I find it interesting that you can have this creativity where... On the surface, you could be like, oh, people who have the most resources would be able to be the most creative or utilize their creativity. And they certainly have many more avenues and opportunities to do so, but there still is creativity on the the other side of the spectrum where there is the lack. Yeah, and that actually reminds me of my last example, which is Gail creating the snare trap Mm -hmm. weapon. And that coming from the snares that he and Katniss would put out because they were hunting as its own way of trying to survive and, and go around the path that's put in, in front of them by the capital to yeah to innovate and to, to find their own ways of, of that survival. Yeah, um, I think he's a great example of creative solutions. Yeah. But yeah, that's your last one. Should we move into your question for me? Sure. I was wondering, if you were a victor, what would your talent be and how would the capital try to ruin it, basically? <laughs> the thought of me as a victor is just laughable. <laughs> it would be one of those situations where it's like, the volcano erupted and everyone died and I happened to not be there. <laughs> the only way. And it happened on day two. Your PETA yeah. sacrificed himself after killing the biggest threats. Yeah. <laughs> Something <laughs> happened where I was the last person standing. Yes. What, what am I... I I don't know. That's a hard one. Because I think 
I would be similar to Katniss in the sense of she was thinking that I'm not going to sing for them. Singing is for me. That's, mm-hmm. a, that's a personal thing. So it's, I would not share my writings, my poetry or something with Panem because, first of all, they would all be super edited <laughs> considering. Yep. And so they would have no integrity left. So, yeah, that would that would be difficult. I mean... And if I was afraid of repercussions for me doing something that was subtle, but some people, you know, Snow could figure it out mm-hmm. <laughs> well enough to to punish me for it. I don't know. I would probably just like, I haven't played piano in a really long time, but I'd probably just like try to do that not very well. <laughs> like, you know, just like something I can... You know, you're you're playing someone else's work. You, I I don't compose anything. It's it's not as personal. It's not mm. something that they would be like. I mean, everything in this world in this scenario is an exploitation, but like it wouldn't feel as personal. I think absolutely um, than if it was something that was meaningful to me. If like Johanna Mason, I didn't have any one left, <laughs> then yeah, maybe I would do something that was slightly subtle and like underhanded (laughs) Mm -hmm. what about you what would you do yeah one of the differences between us is that i love the spotlight and so (laughs) i would probably those ideas of not wanting to share what's personal to me never came into my mind um (laughs) but but I, i i did have a similar journey when thinking about this where like i think my first idea would be to want to study and write about history Mm-hmm. Um, to write about the history of Pan Am and, and to highlight, yeah, new avenues of thinking about it and, and studying it and, and these other kinds of elements. Oh, hey, can I get access to one of these other districts? Yeah, putting together oral histories, like <laughs> all that sounds fascinating and amazing. But I also recognize that that would be so edited and so subverted by the capital. And also so boring to the capital. <laughs> that too. That... Ultimately, once I started seeing how the form that it, that the capital put it out into that I didn't have control over, probably because, yeah, I mean, the capital would know me well enough to know that they could literally shoot anyone and I'd be like, okay, I'll do whatever you want. <laughs> um, so that would probably get me out of, of doing something that I find so important uh, to society. So maybe I, I could continue that at that point. Yeah, like writing fantasy stories or something <laughs> and, and trying to Creating put in very... RPGs. Yeah, yeah. Trying to come up with very, very abstract metaphors for the way that the society is broken um, and hoping to get away with them. But yeah, it would be, uh, it would be rough. You would, you would start a line of RPG tabletop games that you would have characters that then when capital people purchased it, Mm -hmm they would have to sometimes step into the shoes of someone from the districts and try to create a tiny bit of empathy that way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be awesome. Except, Except that you're in everything Venom. about it. Uh, <laughs> and somehow you became a victor. <laughs> um, Which also wouldn't happen unless we were both in the games together and or one of your siblings or something, one of your friends was in there with you. And literally, you were going to try to sacrifice yourself for them. And they gave me hemlock or something and made me fall asleep. Hemlock? Is that? Oh, that's probably no, that's, a poison, that, huh? I don't that'll think that's me. what. Yeah. <laughs> now it's turning into Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> You're thinking something happened that didn't. <laughs> yeah. Both of us would be dead. Yes, is the conclusion. Yeah. We would never have to even worry about it. I mean, I would have died before even getting in the game just from living in the districts. But, you know, this is, a, I think, a fun hypothetical question mostly about us, but it also does highlight, yeah, the, the elements of how these talents and these ideas that, oh, now they have the resources where they can create and they can do whatever they want is still so fraught with control and exploitation and and things like that that's true yeah maybe i would do baking because that's then you get to eat exactly because the sweets would be like one of my coping <laughs> mechanisms <laughs> yeah and but and I, and I loved what you said about how sharing something vulnerable and sharing something personal 
that's not something you want to give to the capital in the same way. And I can imagine that's something that many victors have to go through as well. Absolutely. Well, why don't we head into our missed opportunities? What did you bring? I have just a tiny one that came to mind when you were talking about PETA connecting through his creativity. Mm. It's just that now I really wish that we'd gotten to see PETA and Cinna interact some. Yeah. I think that could have been really cool. Or even him and Portia, who we don't really see much of. Yeah, we don't really see them. But, yeah. you know, he, he seemed to have fondness for her, mm-hmm. but we, we don't really know much. But, yeah, that, that could have been really cool to see them interact more and connect on that level. Yeah. But the one that I was thinking of is that creativity has always been a striking part of propaganda. Mm. Whether that's through storytelling or illustrations or some other medium, my mind goes to Dr. Seuss. And Mm -hmm. even though he created some charming and lovely books and stories, he also had some horrible, really, really bad anti-Japanese propaganda that he did you know and you can't think of World War II without some propaganda being Mm -hmm. discussed um, in some sort of academic setting at the very least and so visuals are so big in propaganda or yeah sometimes it's it's storytelling whether it's overt propaganda or not like military movies or even superhero movies that are super militaristic and stuff it's Mm -hmm. it's still propaganda absolutely so yeah i just i guess i just wish that we got to see a little bit more of that i mean obviously we know that they're with the propos that they're doing that it engages with this to some degree but i would really enjoy or (laughs) maybe enjoy isn't the right word (laughs) i would really find fascinating to learn more ways that propaganda from the capital was disseminated to the districts as well as to the capital people um, and what forms those took. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think we see not only the propos, but we, we see a lot of how symbols are used for spreading those kinds of messages with mm-hmm. the Mockingjay, with the, the three-finger salute and things like that, mm-hmm. and, and how those symbols can be really meaningful. And, and maybe that makes sense in a society where creation of posters and things like that they don't necessarily have the resources to do the same way but yeah i I wonder especially once the war really breaks out what that looks like as Mm -hmm. the districts start taking over other districts and start building their resources and their capabilities and and you know clearly this is something they're heavily thinking about since it's essentially the plot of the third book Mm -hmm. (laughs) um yeah uh, yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. But yeah, even even before that, like 10 years before Katniss enters the arena, you know, what were novels like mm. in the capital? Yeah. What were TV shows that are on? That is there anything that happens, any form of entertainment that happens in the capital that doesn't touch on the districts or the games in any way? Or do all of them have that as a component? And also, I think it'd be super fascinating to see what forms of creativity are used to undermine those ideas in the districts sure you can't write down treasonous stories but there are so many oral traditions that i'm sure would come out in districts and in the same smaller communities um, of stories that would be passed down and things like that absolutely well what is your missed opportunity Mine continues my train of, but how does it work in District 13? Yeah, I think it'd be interesting to find out in what ways expression and creativity is policed in District 13. Mm. Um, You know, is there a kind of cultural move away from it out of necessity? You know, people are basically told that, that it's a waste of time and that, you know, when you're struggling for survival, there's no time for creativity. I could imagine that being the case with the fact that, again, they needed to go to the capital for people to help Katniss with the the propos. Mm -hmm. But I also wonder if even in a kind of regimented society like that, they also lean on and and understand studies and, and science that have shown that time for creativity actually can help out in many other ways and that it can make people healthier. It can make them more productive. It can do all sorts of other kinds of meaningful things for people. And so 
does District 13 have, you know, creativity hours for people mm-hmm. where it's like you actually have to be doing something creative here because that's going to work your mind in these ways. It's going to help your mental health. It's going to, you know, do all Where's the classical music? We will play for people. Exactly. <laughs> Whether so, they like it or not. <laughs> so for them, I, I think less so than for the Capitol, which we've talked about how they would be, yeah, censoring and editing and, and you know, making sure that, that anti-Capitol propaganda or works or, or art isn't out there i think for district 13 it would be less about the content that would be policed and more about the activity that would be policed you know do they do they think that it's a worthwhile position for someone to be an artist and does that help society in a way mm-hmm. that is necessary for them when weighed against yeah their lack of resources and and labor and things like that yeah totally are they given a ration of paper Mm. and pens for like the year and then they can use it how they want but once they run out they don't have access to anymore i don't know yeah 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 that's interesting though because this has almost nothing to do with it but i was recently watching the reality tv show blown away about glass blowers Mm -hmm. on netflix and it was cool one of the challenges that they ended up doing the glass blowers had to create something that had something to do with environmentalism and Hmm. and climate change and, and things like that kind of at least in a small way the show recognizing that doing this still uses resources Mm -hmm. it's still it's not a great thing for the environment and so yeah thinking about creativity we can i think only think of it as just a positive thing Mm -hmm. because sometimes it does have a negative environmental impact or or you're using resources on that instead of resources on people who are starving or whatever it is So I think, yeah, that it is kind of interesting to look at District 13 versus something like the capital of these two ends of the spectrum. Yeah, where District 13 has very good reasons to be extremely intentional with their Mm -hmm. resource use, their time use, and and, and seeing time as a resource in ways that something like the capital doesn't have to. Yeah, but is there any beauty there? (laughs) Or not any, but doesn't seem like there's a ton of beauty, ton of like joy and, you know, expression and things like that, which is even though Effie never went to District 13 in the books, Mm -hmm. when they did do that in the movies, it was great to see how she just like cannot abide outfits to look like this or whatever. So she will figure out a way to make something to stand out or to be different, to be creative. Yeah, an amazing piece of costume design <laughs> absolutely but thinking about that that like sometimes you don't necessarily always need something new or to use new materials to do something creative which yeah that's cool too yeah well we should probably head into our takeaways Sounds after good. this very lengthy discussion <laughs> what's yours i think my takeaway is trying to be more aware of where creativity is stemming from Mm. so like we were talking about the covey and they have all of these creative things but a lot of their songs are kind of have some darker themes to them which just makes sense and then you have the garish over the top creativity in in the capital and seeing that yeah some of these things are rooted in different experiences and realities of personal experiences as well as systemic experiences and so yeah I think trying to take that with me as I'm reading not only these books again but any books that I read in the future when there are different creative elements that come out stopping to think where are those coming from what is motivating these things Mm. yeah absolutely yeah what about you well for one one of my takeaways is that we should have had creativity on our list of themes much earlier because <laughs> I think this is a really, really fascinating topic to go through. Totally. Yeah. Um, so thanks again to, to Kimberly. I think on that note, for me, I, I'm really glad that we talked about this fairly soon after we talked about agency in The Hunger Games mm-hmm. because the two are so linked now for me. How the creativity of so many people is a form of agency, is a form of them exerting their independence, their individuality, 
or their destructive capabilities Mm -hmm. um and how that gives characters both named and that we follow and people in panem like you were talking about with the architects and the, the the people who contributed small little things to these arenas how it gives them more weight in the world that they are a part of and more responsibility for the way that world is and that i think is is really really fascinating for me and and gives the world as a whole a lot more depth which is probably yeah my my biggest takeaway from this conversation is there's so many layers exactly (laughs) yeah it's like an onion great analogy very creative (laughs) well what will we be discussing next week on the podcast Well, as we said before, we are starting our read-through of the Hunger Games trilogy. Yeah. So in preparation for that conversation, you should be reading chapters one and two. Yeah, I think we'll probably go to a fairly slow pace for these first uh, first few chapters. Because there's just so much there. Exactly. But we'd love to have you come and read along with us. And before we go, we just recently got a new patron. And Hooray! Have, yeah. So thank you so much, Katie, for joining us. And we have a geeky fact to share about her. When she played roller derby about 10 years ago, her name was Diagon Alley. And her number was nine and three quarters. That's amazing. <laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> yes. Amazing. Great. Uh, I've wanted to go see roller derby for so long, too. (laughs) Of course you have. (laughs) (laughs) We've never talked about that before, but you said that. I'm like, yeah, that sounds like Chris. (laughs) (laughs) But that's that's very, very cool. Thanks so much, Katie, for sharing that with us. Yeah. And we are super excited to have her and all of our patrons engaging with us as we move into this read-through of The Hunger Games. We are revamping our tiers for what perks people get to all have to do with the hunger games and our read through so yes we would love for you to join us on patreon check that out at patreon.com slash geek between the lines thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of geek between the lines you can find links to our social media and our website in the episode description one of the best ways to help us out is to tell a friend who you think would enjoy it now's the perfect time as we move into reading through the hunger games books We want to thank Kimberly Taylor-Pastel, who not only gave us the topic for today's discussion, but also designed our logo. And you can find her other designs at lacelet.com or searching for Lacelet on Facebook or Instagram. If you want to see her creativity, which sometimes involves geeky things. Yeah. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek geek out. out!